So in 2014, the movie God's Not Dead was released. How many people remember that movie coming out? Okay, a lot. And there was some buzz around it because if, if we're honest, and hopefully as Christians we're, we're being honest, Christian movies have been rife with cheesiness. They haven't been the most well-produced movies. Good message, but not super well-produced. So people were really excited about this new movie, God's Not Dead. Well, um, it wasn't quite as cheesy as the others, but it still had its, its fair bit of cheesiness. But the title, God's Not Dead, was derived from a quote from a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. And so as we look at this text, and as we see suffering in the world, the question that may come up is that if God is truly all-powerful, and if he is truly all-knowing, why is there suffering all around us? How are we to respond to that as followers of Christ? Perhaps God isn't dead, you might say, but maybe he's just just idle. Maybe he just sees what's going on, but he's not really doing anything about it. Well, I'd submit to you that God, God is not idle, and even when evil surrounds us, the righteous shall live by faith. So even when evil surrounds them, the righteous shall live by faith. If you're looking for a big sermon summary statement, that's it right there. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, this is it. When evil, even when evil surrounds them, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we are starting a new series today. We spent 29 weeks looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And before that, we spent uh, about four weeks looking at Ruth. And before that, we spent about 60 to 70 weeks looking at the gospel of Mark. And that's just the pattern of what we do here. We try to go one book at a time because we think if we look at each book, all of the topics, so to speak, that are going to hit us in this life are going to be addressed. And so we just try to go one book at a time, and we try to go passage by passage, just to try to let God's word speak rather than the person who stands behind the pulpit speak. We want to submit ourselves to what God says, not what the person up here says. And so this book, let me just give you some context and background about the book of Habakkuk. So this was written shortly before the fall of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. And that they fell in 586 B.C. So commentators will say this book was written anywhere from about 590 to 640 B.C. Somewhere in that 50-year span, this book was written. Now, during this time, the nation of Assyria is the world power. However, their power is declining. They are on the way out. And the nation that is on the way up, on the way in, is the nation of Babylon, also known as the Chaldeans. Now, this book, Habakkuk, it's the eighth book of 12 minor prophets. And the word minor there, don't be fooled, that book doesn't mean that they're any less important. It just means that, that those prophets have shorter books. Shorter books. And this is one of three books that address the challenges faced by the kingdom of Judah. And so they're all in an order. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Nahum anticipates Assyria's decline. So Nahum is talking about how Assyria, the world power, is going to decline. Zephaniah deals with the internal issues 
of the kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk, being appropriately placed right between them, addresses the fall of Assyria, the rise of Babylon, and the internal issues of Judah. That's what we're looking at in this book. And the overall theme of the book, trying to understand what the book of Habakkuk is all about, it's this, that the righteous shall live by faith. That the righteous shall live by faith. And today, what we're looking at is that the righteous shall live by faith even when evil surrounds them. The righteous shall live by faith even when evil surrounds them. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, it's a less popular book, so if you're looking for that, you'll turn to the Old Testament, you'll find Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then you'll find the New Testament. And if you're using one of the blue provided Bibles nearby, that's going to be on page 785. Page 785 of the blue provided Bibles nearby. And if you just look in there, you'll find a big number one. And then you'll find little numbers next to some of those words. Those are the verses. So as I reference verses, that's just this little number there that you're looking for. So Habakkuk, and we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses in today's text. So the first 11 verses. All right. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see what is in this text. We pray by your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you would, in your bulletin, you're going to see three points. And those three points go like this. In verse 1, we see Habakkuk's oracle. Habakkuk's oracle. In verses 2 through 4, we see Habakkuk's complaint. And then in verses 5 through 11, we see God's response. Habakkuk's oracle, Habakkuk's complaint, and God's response. And so in verse 1, we see that this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, what is an oracle? So an oracle 
is a message about a nation. The message from God about a nation. Now, the question is which nation? Because it's not specifically mentioned which nation uh, he's referring to here. However, two nations are mentioned. We see the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and we see the nation of Babylon, which is just also known as the Chaldeans. Similar to how we say United States, but if you're from the United States, you're Americans. So Babylon, Chaldeans, same thing. Now, as we'll see, this oracle is relevant to both of those nations. It's relevant to both. As we go through this book, you're just going to find out that this is relevant to both of those nations. Now, the question that we have to ask is, who was Habakkuk? We see that this is an oracle that Habakkuk received. Well, okay, great. Who is Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah. Now, just to give you some history as to what Judah is, the nation of Israel split. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, and 10 of those tribes went and made their own kingdom called the Northern Kingdom, and it kept the name Israel. Now, the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they created their own kingdom called the Southern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom of Judah. So, Israel's in the north, Judah was in the south. Now, the nation of Judah was increasingly more and more and more rebellious against God's law. They rejected God's law, they joyfully pursued sin, and they went after other gods. But Habakkuk is unlike any of the other Old Testament prophets that we see. Habakkuk not only received a word from God to give to the people, but he didn't just receive it and then give it to them. He wrestled with God. He didn't like what he, what he heard. And we see that. He brings his complaint to God, as we'll look at. But Habakkuk's name comes from the root word to embrace. And so that clues us in. We look at that first verse. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he receives an oracle. And this guy Habakkuk, his name means to embrace. And he's unique in that he wrestles with God about what God has told him. So his name clues us in that as he wrestles with God, God is going to be teaching him to embrace the difficult things of the faith. So Habakkuk is given this message from God, and the message is for the whole kingdom of Judah, and Habakkuk isn't super thrilled about it. So as we see Habakkuk wrestle with what God has said, know this, that it's okay to wrestle with what God has said. As Christians, we're driven by what God has said in his word. We base all that we do around it. Scriptures say that it's sufficient for life and, uh, and practice. We see that in 2 Peter. Now, it's okay to wrestle with what God says. It's not okay, and this is what Judah was doing, it's not okay to reject what God says. Do you see that difference? It's okay to wrestle with it. It's not okay to reject it. And so... With that in mind, knowing who Habakkuk is, knowing that he's been given this message to the nation, knowing that it's okay to wrestle but not reject, let's look at that second point. We see Habakkuk's complaint. Now, Habakkuk's complaint is twofold. Okay? So if you see in verse 2, he says, how long? And in verse 3, he says, why? How long and why? Now, how long, he essentially says, how long will he call out to God? and ask for help. How long will God not hear him? How long will Habakkuk point out violence to God, God being a holy and righteous God? How long will we point out violence to him and this holy and righteous God seem to do nothing? 
how long, when he says that, indicates that Habakkuk has been pointing these things out and has been wrestling with this for a long time. He's now saying, God, how long am I going to continue to bring these things to you and you seemingly do nothing? Habakkuk feels the pain of living in a fallen and sinful world. He sees that all around him. And we often feel that too. How long will cancer take loved ones from us? How long will children be murdered in the womb? How long will we hear about school shootings? How long will nations wage war? How long will tornadoes and hurricanes destroy and obliterate communities? How long will justice be perverted? How long will sin and rebellion against God be celebrated? We can feel that. The pain of living in a fallen world. God, how long are we going to continue to witness this? How long are we going to see these things go on and you seemingly do nothing? But then he asks, why? You see this in verses 3 and 4. Look at me there. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention, they arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So the fact saying, how long am I going to have to witness this? Why? Why do you allow it to happen? Why are you letting me see this? Why aren't you doing anything? Why does God allow these things not only to take place, but to escalate, to increase as time goes on? Why does God allow injustice? He is perfectly just. We affirm that, right? So why does he allow injustice to take place? Habakkuk witnessed all kinds of evil around him. And he was honest with God about his frustrations. He did not hold back. He was very straightforward with him. And look, friends, you can be honest with God. Do you have complaints? Do you have questions about why things are the way they are in the world? Don't just harbor them. Take them to God. You are free to do that. Christians, If you are a Christian in here today, if you're a follower of Christ, do your prayers reflect the kind of honesty that we see in the prophet Habakkuk? I I have to wrestle with this all the time. I feel like if if I'm too honest, then that's almost dishonorable to God. You know, like if I I just, if I let him know what I really think, that feels dishonorable. But in fact, the, the reality is that dishonest prayers dishonor God. We are allowed to be honest with him. We're allowed to be truthful with him. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, says, let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Now this confidence, the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, the confidence to be very honest with God in our prayers is only possible through Christ. Only through Christ. Why? Because the one true God is holy, and sin cannot dwell with him. You can look at Psalm 5.4. It mentions how evil cannot dwell with God. Now, the, the problem is that we're not holy. God is a holy and just God. He is spotless. We are not. And anything, any kind of sin, cannot dwell 
with God. Otherwise, he would no longer be holy. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we can just attest that none of us in here on our own are holy. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so there's a genuine problem there. However, Jesus Christ does provide the way for that sin to be removed, to be taken away. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So all the things that keep us from God, that sin, that can be cleansed. If we confess our sin and trust him to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look, if your sin is removed, if you've been made holy by having your sin removed and by wearing Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness, then you can approach the throne of grace with confidence because you are seen as holy. Your sin has been taken care of. The thing that kept you from God is removed. And so you can be confident to approach him. You can know that you have his ear because you are united to his son. So we have, we have three kids, and there's a park just a block away from us, and they love going to this park. And so we go to this park, and there's a ton of kids that run around there. And there are a lot of kids who are calling out Daddy. Just you can hear them at trying to get their parents' attention for whatever reason. They climbed up something. They want their, their parents to see. So a lot of kids are yelling out Daddy. But look, even though I can hear them, those kids don't have my attention. But when I hear my kid say Daddy, all of a sudden that gets my attention. Why? Because I have a special love for my kid. I have a special heart for my child. And so when, when he or she says Daddy, they have my attention. My, my ear turns. And in the same way, the father has a special love for his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, then when you come to the father clothed in Christ's righteousness, praying in Christ's name, then you have the attention of the Father. Not because of what you've done, but because you are entrusting yourself to Christ, to the Son of God. When you do that, the Father's attention is directed toward you. Now, if you're not a Christian, first off, we are so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. But if you're not a Christian, I just want to let, let you know, just submit to you that to get the Father's attention, you need to go through the Son. There is no other way to get the Father's attention. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not that most people, it's not that I'm one of, uh, of just a few ways, or I'm one of many ways. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. So apart from the Son, God may hear you. But you should have no expectation that you have his attention. John Calvin, the great reformer, put it this way. He said, an access to God is open to all, to all who come to him relying on Christ as their mediator. That access to God is available to anyone who relies on Christ as mediator. Christianity is simultaneously the most inclusive and the most exclusive religion on the planet. It's the most inclusive in that anyone who calls on the name of Christ can have access to the Father. But it's the most exclusive in the sense that the only way that anyone has access to the Father is through the one way, Jesus Christ. 
Does that make sense? Great. Okay. Thank you. So now, after speaking honestly and straightforwardly with God, we see God respond. So look at verse 5. So Habakkuk has been very honest with God. And now, God answers Habakkuk. He says, look among the nations and see. Tells Habakkuk to look at the nations. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God is not unaware of the evil in Habakkuk's day. He is doing something. But he says, look, Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Now he does end up telling him. And Habakkuk does have a tough time believing it. But here's the thing. God is going to use the nations to execute justice against his chosen people. So if we look at verses 6 through 10, he says in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now notice the description that God gives to this people, this, this people of Babylon, the Chaldeans. Notice this description. He takes, he takes a good chunk of our text here just to describe how brutal these people are, how wicked they are. He says they're bitter and hasty. He says they take homes or dwellings that aren't theirs. In verse 7, we see that they're dreaded and fearsome. He's, we see that justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So they're not, they don't use God's standard for justice. They use their own. Justice goes forth from themselves. Their horses are swift and fierce. Their horsemen are swift to devour. Like an eagle coming down for prey, these horsemen are, are swift and quick to devour and to bring destruction. They come for violence in verse 9. And in, in verse 9, we see it. They gather captives like sand. It seems like nobody can stop this people. All these wicked things, nobody seems to be able to, to stop them. They scoff and laugh at kings and rulers. And then for those uh, kingdoms that try to raise up fortresses to protect themselves, we see in verse 10 that these, these Chaldeans, they laugh at every fortress, every defense system, and they overtake it. And so the Chaldeans are a brutal and ungodly people. So let's recap. Okay, just to make sure that we are, we're aware of what we're looking at here. Habakkuk sees ongoing wickedness in Judah. And he honestly calls out to God with frustration. He asks God, how long? How long will you let this go on? And he asks God, why? Why aren't you doing anything? And God responds. He says, oh, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. You just won't believe it. You're just not going to like it. See, I'm going to use an evil nation, a very evil and wicked nation, to punish your nation, my chosen people, for its evil deeds. He's going to use a more evil nation to punish his nation for their evil deeds. So the question that might pop up is that does that make God the author of evil? He's raising up these Chaldeans. Does that make God the author of evil? Well, the answer is no. And what we need to understand is that the Chaldeans, like all of fallen humanity, already had evil in their heart. It was already there because of the fall. We're all stained by it. But God, in his sovereignty, will use it for his purpose. And he will get the final word as to how that is used and utilized. Matthew Henry, commenting on this, he said, Though God bore long, he would not bear always. God has patiently endured the evil deeds of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk says, how long are you going to continue 
to endure this? How long are you going to continue to look on it idly? God says, not much longer. I am going to bring justice. I will address evil. I will address the sin that you see. I am not idly sitting by. I am doing something about it. And here's the thing, friends. God has always been doing something about sin. Ever since sin entered humanity at the fall, he has been creating a plan. He's been working a plan to redeem fallen humanity. There has always, from eternity past, been a plan to redeem God's people. So even when we don't see it, even when it's not blatantly obvious to us, we can trust that God is working to make all things, not most things, all things right. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, I would encourage you to look at the southern kingdom of Judah. They thought because they were God's nation that he would overlook their sin. And they confused God's patience with God's approval. Do not confuse God's patience with God's approval. He is always working to address sin. His patience, friends, is for your repentance. He is kindly held off judgment so that you would have time to turn from your sin and confess Christ and follow Christ and depend on him to take away your sin. Romans 2, verse 4, talks about this. Paul says, he says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so friends, we need to trust God even when we don't see him working. He is working. We can be confident of that. You can be honest in your prayers. You don't have to hold back. Why? Because you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. You wear the clothing of his holiness. And your sin that kept you from God has been removed through Christ if you call on him. So you can now approach that throne boldly. You can be honest in your prayers. You're upset with evil. You hate injustice. You want suffering to end. Look, Habakkuk had the same complaint. He felt the same thing. And he called out to God about it. And if you think about it, we were in a privileged position. Because Habakkuk was given a little bit of information about how God is going to address evil in the southern kingdom of Judah, right? So he, he gives them that information. Hey, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, this bitter and hasty and evil nation, to address the evil here. But from where we sit, we have all of God's revealed word. And so we can see that he was addressing sin there in the southern kingdom, but he's also addressing sin eternally throughout all of creation. It wasn't just isolated to the southern kingdom of Judah. It's now for all of creation. He was addressing sin, not temporarily, but eternally. So look, Jesus is the good that you long for. You feel the evil in this nation. You feel the evil in this world. You see the suffering. Jesus is the good that you long for. Jesus is the relief that you desire from the suffering that you see. Jesus is the good judge who will bring about perfect justice who will condemn all injustice, and who will make all things right. And through Jesus Christ, through him, 
all sin will be judged perfectly. And so look, if you are trusting in Christ, if you've called on Christ to remove your sin, you've called and trusted on him to provide you with the righteousness that you need to be made right with God, if that's you, then your sin is removed. And it's been replaced with his holiness, with his righteousness. Hebrews 12, 14, again, remember, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need our sin to be removed, and we need an outward holiness and righteousness to be given to us. Christ answers both of those problems. But if you are not trusting in Christ, if you're trusting anything other than Christ, then your sin remains. You continue to be divided from God. And you have a lacking righteousness. You have a need for righteousness, but you haven't been given sufficient righteousness. Because look, even if from this moment forward, okay, let's just pretend hypothetical situation. Even if from this moment forward, you never do anything sinful again in your life. That's not going to be the case, but let's just say it is. You still have years of sin that need to be addressed. It needs to be addressed. God cannot dwell with sin. So even if from this moment you say, yes, okay, from now on, I am going to be a different person. And you try to do it in your own strength. You're not calling on anyone, you're not calling on Christ to remove that sin. Then you still won't be united to God. Because that sin in the past has not been dealt with. He cannot dwell with sin. But Jesus provides a way for that sin to be dealt with. And he says, I am the way. I am the way that that sin is dealt with. I am the truth. And I am the life. You want life? Come to me. This is what Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so look, friends, if that verse is true, just, just take that verse, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If that one verse is true, then Jesus is the only way. He's not one of many. And Christianity cannot be one of many true religions. Because if Christianity is true, then that means Christianity is the only way. If that verse is true, then Christianity cannot be one among many. It is the only one that can make you right with God. Matthew Henry, like we said earlier, said, Though God bore long, he would not bear always. There is evil and there is wickedness in this world, but God has addressed it. He's done it through his Son. He will judge and punish sin. That's guaranteed. See that all throughout the Scriptures. He will judge and punish sin. The southern kingdom of Judah, they found that out. They found that out through the Chaldeans. And we're going to, as we continue to go through this book, we're going to see how that uh, is described. But also, every person who's ever lived and died has also found that out. Scriptures say that it's appointed for man to live once, and then after that comes judgment. When your time on this earth is done, you will face God's judgment. That is a guarantee. The question is, Will your sin remain with you? Or will you have called on Christ to forgive it? To remove it? Will you trust him not only as your forgiver, but also as your Lord and as your master? So that, that quote that I gave you earlier by Nietzsche, I only gave you part of it. I'll start from the beginning and give you the rest of it. He says, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. And then he goes on. He says, how shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood 
off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? God has responded to that Nietzsche quote. Is not the greatness of this deed, of killing God, is it, is it not too great for us? God has responded to that. And he said it is too great for you. But it's not too great for God. Your sin is too great for you to bear. Your rebellion against an eternally holy and righteous and just God is too great for you to bear. But it's not too great for God. You cannot clean your guilty stains. No matter how many good deeds you do. But God can. And God is gracious to have taken the punishment that is due to sinners, that is justly and rightly due to sinners. He is gracious to have put that punishment on himself for all those who call on his son. So look at this. When we see in that text, Habakkuk calling out violence, and why do you idly look at wrong? Those claims should be directed right at the cross. As Christ, the perfect one, suffered in our place. We should say violence. God, why do you idly look at wrong? It is wrong for your son, who is perfect and without sin, to pay the punishment for sin. But he does. Why? Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it wasn't wrong. It was God being just. He was paying for sin. Christ went to the cross to pay for the sin of all those who would call on his name. Not all of humanity. Otherwise, nobody would go to hell. But he pays for the sin of all of those who call on his name. And so God is just to punish that sin, but he's also the justifier. For all those who call on him, he justifies you. He says, yes, you are clean in my sight. My son has taken away your sin. You do wear his righteousness. Come. Come into my presence. You are welcome here. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. There is a very real hell. And I know hell is an awkward topic to discuss. And if you want, if you want to go through a little study, there's a book right there in the back. It's called, what is, or is Hell Real? And it's written by Dane Orland. Very small, short book. There's a handful of them back there. They're free for you to take. You don't even have to return it. I encourage you to get together with a couple people, talk about that book, read it, discuss it consider it. But there's a very real hell filled with very real people who had very real opportunities to call on the name of Christ, to forgive them and to lead them, but who never quite got around to it. Don't let that be your story. The righteous shall live by faith. If you want to live eternally in the presence of God, enjoying his riches for all eternity, what Christ has earned, then you need to place your faith in him. The righteous shall live by faith even when evil surrounds them. So today, consider asking Christ to forgive you and to lead you. Place your faith in him and enjoy life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing something about the evil and the sin in the world. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for living the life that we should have lived. Perfectly holy and righteous one. 
However, it's the life that we did not live. And thank you for paying the penalty that we should have paid, enduring the wrath of God. Thank you for doing that on behalf of your people. God, we pray that you would help us to remember that and live faithfully in light of it. We pray that those who are here who may not have embraced that yet would make today be the day that they call on Christ for forgiveness. We pray this in his name. Amen.